PT Pro Talk Podcast, the fastest way to increase your knowledge with the brightest minds of physical therapy in your pocket. Welcome to PT Pro Talk Podcast. I am Ariana Tondo, your host for today. In this episode, Dr. Angela Cadogan talks about the diagnosis and management of acute and chronic shoulder conditions. Angela has a PhD in musculoskeletal diagnosis, runs her own private practice, works in an orthopedic triage role in the shoulder service as an advanced practice physiotherapist, and runs online shoulder courses for PTs. I hope you enjoyed the show. Hi, Angela. Welcome to PT Pro Talk. How are you today? I'm very good, thanks, Mariana. And it's good morning, right? <laughs> It is. It's morning here in New Zealand. Yes, perfect. So let's talk about shoulder today. And before we start talking about that, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your career, and how did you get to where you are right now? Sure. Yeah, firstly, thanks very much for having me on your program. It's really nice to be here. So I'm Angela Cadogan. I'm a registered physiotherapy specialist here in New Zealand. And I, at the moment, have three roles. I do run my own private practice in Christchurch in New Zealand. And in that role, I work primarily as a consultant physiotherapist. So I'm seeing a lot of one-off second opinion appointments for patients with shoulder problems. And I'm also working part-time in the local hospital in an orthopedic triage role, which is an advanced practice role relatively new in New Zealand and I work in the shoulder service with one of the orthopedic surgeons and we triage the shoulder referrals according to whether they look like they're heading down a surgical path or a non-surgical path and then we direct them to the appropriate management. And my third role is I run online courses for physiotherapists in the diagnosis and management of shoulder conditions. And I, I got into this I've been doing physio for around 30 years now, and <laughs> I started off actually as a cardiorespiratory physiotherapist in a hospital in Auckland in New Zealand, but I always had a real interest in how the body works, and my career evolved more down a manual therapy pathway and then into a sports physiotherapy pathway, and I worked in professional sports as a physiotherapist for around 10 years. And it was probably during that time that I became interested, particularly in the shoulder. I was working with a lot of throwing athletes and seeing a lot of people with throwing related shoulder pain. And I wanted to take that further into a PhD. And the more I started looking into the throwing shoulder, the more it became apparent to me that actually we, we couldn't even really get to the point of figuring out what was causing the pain in the shoulder. And in the process of talking to a number of people, I ended up down, uh, going down a diagnostic pathway for my PhD. And in that process, we looked at the diagnostic accuracy of the clinical examination tests for identifying causes of shoulder pain. So that was the, my PhD thesis, 
which I finished back in 2012. And then since then, my clinical practice really has evolved into more of a shoulder specialty. And now I, that's all I see, 100% shoulders in my clinical practice. That's awesome. How many different roles? And um, I'm curious to learn more about this triad that you do. So Jack Miller was here. And he was talking about that in Canada and talking a little bit in the different uh, parts of the world. So um, I'm curious to learn more about that part. So let's talk about the diagnosis of shoulder pain. So what is the diagnosis? Okay, well, that's an excellent question. And I'm really glad you asked it, Mariana. I think maybe I spend a little bit too much time on Twitter, I think. But the word diagnosis, I think, has become very sort of misunderstood the, the right back to the Greek definition of the word diagnosis. It actually means to discern or differentiate between different conditions. And now in medicine and physiotherapy, we use it more um, to describe the process of trying to determine the nature and the cause of the patient's presenting symptoms, whatever those might be. And there can be a musculoskeletal cause of those symptoms, but there can also be many other causes, medical causes um, and persistent pain presentations. So it's really the, the process of identifying the nature and cause of the symptoms. So do we need a diagnosis for shoulder symptoms? Yeah, that's another really good question. And the answer to that is, Yes and no. <laughs> and I'm going to explain that a little bit more. The reason why we need a diagnosis, and this is not just of shoulder symptoms, but of any symptoms really, is to help us determine the best treatment for the patient, but also the prognosis for the condition. Now, I'll talk about those two things separately for a start. So in terms of treatment, shoulder pain Firstly, not only does all shoulder, not all shoulder pain comes from the shoulder for a start. So we firstly have to identify whether there are non-shoulder causes of these symptoms. The second thing is that even if the pain is coming from the shoulder, not everything is appropriate for physiotherapy management. So we need to be able to sift through and clinically reason our way through our diagnostic process to make sure that the patients that we are treating actually belong in a physiotherapy clinic. And I'm going to talk sort of later on, I think, about some of the diagnostic categories that are important to identify. But the main reason behind diagnosis is to inform our treatment and also prognosis. In terms of prognosis, that's important because there are certain conditions that have a favorable natural history and they if you left them alone completely would probably resolve over time with a little bit of treatment help along the way there are other conditions that have a not so favorable natural history such as osteoarthritis and many of them deteriorate over time and may go on to need surgical intervention and having knowing that what the condition is helps us with the prognostic information, which in turn helps the patient understand the cause of their symptoms, understand that perhaps more treatment is not necessarily better 
in the sense of a degenerative condition where the expectation is not that treatment will cure the condition, but we're looking to manage the condition. But it also can help reduce health-seeking behavior. So if they, if they understand their condition, they know how to manage it, they know that a lot of treatment is not always going to you know, improve their situation, it can reduce a lot of the unnecessary use of health resources, including uh, medical appointments, physio appointments, imaging, other investigations. So the diagnosis really helps us determine our best treatment pathway, but also the prognosis for that patient's condition. Then in terms of do we need a diagnosis of shoulder pain, I'll, I'll give you an example, and this is probably one for anyone watching the webinar or listening to the podcast. So if a patient arrives in your clinic and he's a 55-year-old male and he's in a high-stress occupation, he comes in complaining of general shoulder symptoms, so symptoms that are not, not well localised around the shoulder girdle region. He uh, describes the symptoms as only being present on exertion, so when he's walking up hills, and that's the only time he feels his shoulder symptoms. Um, general health, he has a history of hypertension, he's on hypertensive medications, there is a strong family history of heart disease, and during the physical examination, you're unable to reproduce his symptoms with any of your clinical tests. So he's presented with shoulder symptoms, but clearly, I hope everyone would be starting to think perhaps this is more of a cardiac related condition rather than a local shoulder problem. So that's where that diagnostic process for shoulder symptoms becomes really important because as I'll talk about in a minute, ruling out serious medical causes of those symptoms is one of the most important things that we have to do as physiotherapists. In terms of do we need a specific diagnosis of shoulder conditions? It does help us if we can identify a specific shoulder condition where one does exist. The reason for that is because some shoulder conditions have specific treatment pathways. And we know from research and large cohort studies, for example, a frozen shoulder, we now know that the best treatment in the early stages for a frozen shoulder in terms of managing pain associated with that problem is an intra-articular injection of corticosteroid into the glenohumeral joint. So to simply treat the symptoms would probably be doing our patients a disservice by not making available to them a treatment option that we know may be helpful for, oh, excuse me, for their pain and function. So that's where a specific diagnosis can be helpful. Other examples would be, uh, obviously, if there's a traumatic injury, a fracture, or an acute soft tissue rupture. In New Zealand, we're mad on rugby, so we do see a lot of um, pector pectoralis major tears in rugby, and obviously that's a, an important diagnosis to make because that needs surgical repair. So do we need a specific diagnosis of shoulder symptoms? That depends entirely upon is there a specific treatment for that condition? And where a specific treatment exists, then it is important for us to be able to identify that condition. So let's talk about the screening. So how that, does that work? How do you do the screening? Yeah, okay, so screening is 
an important part of physiotherapy practice, regardless of the setting in which you work. Every country in the world is a little bit different in how physiotherapists uh, work. Now, I know in New Zealand, physiotherapists are primary contact practitioners, and we have been we have had direct access to our care for ever since I graduated, so at least 30 years now. So patients can walk in our door having seen nobody else presenting with shoulder symptoms. And the example I gave you earlier of the 55-year-old with the exertional shoulder pain was actually a patient who I saw not so long ago. So we have to be able to make sure that the symptoms that patient presents with are not related to some kind of serious medical condition. Now, even if you work in a country or a healthcare setting where you do not have direct access or patients can't access your care directly, that does not exclude the possibility that a serious medical condition may be present. Now, patients may have already seen medical practitioners, they may have had medical investigations. Not only we're all human, sometimes things get missed, and also depending upon how long that patient has to wait between the medical assessment and seeing the physical therapist, things can evolve and develop during that time that can sometimes make it more clear that perhaps this, these symptoms are related to more of a serious condition. So it, it doesn't matter where you work, um, what access patients have to your, your care, we all need to be very aware of um, what we call red flag indicators of serious medical conditions. And I think that's a fairly standard part of uh, physiotherapy training in most areas of the world. So being alert for red flag indicators, any atypical symptoms or signs that that patient may present with, and that's where your clinical reasoning process comes in and your skill at questioning the patient and even pre-screening. I know in my clinic where I work as a consultant physiotherapist, I, I screen all the patients for a number of things, including health history. So we use health history forms, which I find are actually probably more effective, I find, than the history taking, because A, it does reduce the amount of time you have to spend um, going through all this with the patient in the clinic, but also it's, it's very thorough. They have to complete each section, whether or not they think it's relevant. And that's one of the problems I think with taking the history verbally is that patients have come to see you about their shoulder and they may not see the relevance of explaining their family history of diabetes or you know, so they may not disclose that information. So the pre-screening, I think, is really important. It's a very efficient way of doing it. It's a thorough way of doing it. And you can include all sorts of questions about health history, surgical history, previous history of cancer, medication use, as well as any specific questions about red flag indicators. For example, recent weight loss um, and bilateral neurological signs and symptoms and, and those kinds of things. So that screening process is really important to be able to identify the red flag indicators. Having some knowledge, and it depends on where you work. I know in a, in a shoulder specialist setting, you sort of get more familiar with the types of conditions where shoulder pain can be a feature of the process. But being aware of being able to question more deeply about associated body system involvement 
other atypical features. And if you have a high index of suspicion that there may be some concurrent medical process, then being able to refer that patient back for medical assessment. There's, there's been some recent work come out and it's more around identifying serious spinal pathologies. So there's an in, international framework that's just been released recently on identifying serious spinal pathologies. But I really like the traffic light system that they use. And they use a, a red light, an orange light and a green light. And the red light is obviously for patients where you, they have a number of red flags and signs and symptoms and possibly body system involvement that might make you suspicious of a medical condition. Um, an orange light, and, and obviously those are the ones that need early referral. The orange light is where there may be a few indicators um, that there may be a a medical assessment might be necessary, but you may initiate treatment in some cases while you work through that medical process. And the green light is more around, they, they really have very few or no indicators of serious medical conditions and treatment can proceed as normal. So I quite like that red light, uh, the traffic light system. Um, but I think, yeah, the, the things we need to really be well aware of are the red flag indicators, particularly around emergency conditions. So that would be infections, particularly any evidence of cardiovascular compromise and certainly any traumatic injuries. And uh, that would include, you know, if there's been a high force trauma, like a fracture, an acute soft tissue rupture that may need surgery or a dislocation that needs reduction. Um, so those are, those are just a few examples. There are many more, but the, the red flag indicators for serious emergent conditions, other medical conditions, um, and I think thereafter, the screening process, one of the other things we then need to do is really check to see uh, whether we think that the symptoms of the shoulder are actually being referred from somewhere else. Now, that may be the cervical or thoracic spine, but in some cases that may be also a visceral referred pain. So we need to be very alert for any sort of atypical signs and symptoms, as well as screening for cervical spine and thoracic spine involvement in the reproduction of those symptoms. So the screening process is it's a really important one. Um, it can be fairly efficient doing it by pre-screening. And screening for cervical and spinal referred pain is also another important factor. Yeah, that's super important. And I'm curious to ask you, in your experience, uh, like how many of these patients that you see that supposedly have shoulder pain, how many are real shoulder pain that are not pain coming from otherwhere, are um, not red flags? Just curious to, to, to pick your brain on that. Yeah, that's a great question. In my setting, so as a specialist physiotherapist, I tend to see patients who have had symptoms for anything ranging from a few months up to five or 10 years. So in most cases, many of them have had extensive medical workup already. So in my setting, if I had to estimate red flag indicators potentially that their symptoms may be from a medical condition, or I'd say maybe 1% or less. And I'm thinking of a couple of examples recently where uh, I had a lady with um, significant morning stiffness, whole body stiffness, recent onset of muscle weakness associated with stiff shoulders. So she's just been referred actually for medical assessment to look to see whether there's any systemic inflammatory markers. 
She's taking statin medications for cholesterol to so to see whether the muscle weakness may be associated with statin use. Um, I had another girl who was referred to me, young girl, she was 19, for a traumatic shoulder instability. She'd seen the surgeon who quite rightly identified that there was nothing structural to operate on in her shoulder, yet she was having ongoing instability episodes. And she attended my appointments um, complaining of a lot of postural hypotension. She almost passed out a couple of times in my clinic when she stood and uh, she had a lot of other systemic features that just weren't adding up. So I referred her back for to her general practitioner for some medical assessment. And she was subsequently diagnosed with Allerdanlos syndrome, which is one of the hypermobility syndromes that can affect the vascular system in some cases. So, so that, those are two that stand out probably in the last 18 months of my practice. Um, in terms of referred pain, I would say, and if I had to put a percentage on that, maybe between 5 and 10% of the patients I see with upper limb pain, where I have probably attributed the upper limb pain exclusively to a cervical spine problem. Um, but there are many more number of patients who may have a combination of cervical spine and shoulder mm -hmm. symptoms. If you looked at a different setting, so maybe just in a, a normal primary care, general, typical physiotherapy private practice, I would estimate that the red flags may be higher because those patients generally haven't had the extensive medical screening that the patients I see have had done. So I think the index of suspicion there would certainly be higher. And um, yeah, so that's probably the best guess I can give you in terms of proportions of red flags and referred pain. And do you think that physical therapists in general, I know you can, can talk for everybody, but do you think that we are prepared to do this uh, differential diagnosis and do all this screening? That's a great question. I think it depends a lot on where you train and what emphasis is placed on that in your training. I, I make an analogy when I was working as a sports phys physiotherapist every year or at least every two years we had to update our basic life support training and that included CPR and spinal board training and I never had to use it so you do the training every two years to update to stay current and you had to do that because if you're not using something you're just not going to stay up to speed with it and so I think the training, initial undergraduate training, I think is one thing, but I think there's probably a case really for ongoing periodic review and updates of a lot of this information. And especially, it's going to vary. I guess if you look at the prevalence of different medical conditions, diseases and clinical presentations, that's also going to vary across different countries in the world. And I know... Um, for example, spinal infections um, or joint infections are much more prevalent in less developed countries than they perhaps are in New Zealand. So if you're working you know, in a different country than New Zealand, you may see more joint or spinal infections. Tuberculosis is almost non-existent in New Zealand, and that can present with shoulder and um, upper limb symptoms whereas in other countries that is more prevalent. So it depends a little bit on where you work as to what's more prevalent and what needs to be higher on your radar. But I think there's certainly a case for staying updated 
in this area. And there's, there's some good resources out there for physiotherapists. One of Actually, one of my courses um, deals with health screening and red flag indicators for shoulder pain as well. And there are others out there too that are available online. Yeah, for sure. Continuing education, uh, super important. When you graduate from college, it's just the beginning, right? So Absolutely. we have to keep that in mind. <laughs> Absolutely, you do. And I think that the important thing to probably realize for us too is it is not our responsibility and it's not our scope of practice to make a diagnosis of the medical condition. It is our responsibility to identify that something is not right, that here is an indicator that may be related to a serious condition. And on the balance of probabilities of all of the information that you gather from that patient, to have an index of suspicion and refer on that basis. So it's not our, our scope of practice to say this patient has rheumatoid arthritis or an infection or a cardiac condition. We have to say this patient has um, significant morning stiffness, they have multiple or bilateral joint involvement, or they have exertional upper limb pain and refer back for medical assessment based on the symptoms, not with any kind of expectation of a diagnosis. So I think that's another important thing for us to realize as well. Absolutely. And in regards to diagnosis of specific shoulder conditions, can we make a diagnosis and then do we need to? You kind of answered the next one. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's a really good question too. And <laughs> I could talk all day about this. So can we make a diagnosis of specific shoulder conditions? Okay, so if we have excluded red flag indicators or signs and symptoms of serious medical conditions, if we have excluded significant traumatic injuries, so a fracture, you know, there's been high force trauma fractures, dislocations, soft tissue ruptures, If we have excluded referred pain from a spinal or other source, then we're left with, okay, the remaining group of patients with shoulder symptoms, some of those patients will have a specific shoulder condition. And it is possible to make a diagnosis of those conditions. Now, can we do that with our tools as physiotherapists and our tools being our clinical examination? Not always. In fact, there's probably very few specific shoulder conditions that we can make a definitive diagnosis based on our clinical examination alone. The reason for that is that our clinical examination tests just lack enough accuracy for those specific shoulder conditions or to make a specific pathoanatomic diagnosis. But if you combine your clinical examination findings with imaging, then it is possible to make a pathoanatomic diagnosis where one exists for most shoulder conditions. So where we fit in our role as physiotherapists, and especially if you're in a role where the diagnosis is a big part of that assessment, and not everyone will work in those settings, particularly if you're in a specialist rehabilitation setting, often that process has gone on before the patient gets to you. So your focus is not so much on diagnosis, but rehabilitation, because you know the diagnosis already. But in situations where, you, where patients have direct access to your care, you're a primary contact practitioner, In the UK now, they have more first contact practitioners working in a GP practice. And I know a lot of those roles are becoming much more common around the world. So 
in that setting, identifying a specific shoulder condition can be done, and it is important to do that where a specific treatment exists. And that's where that line for diagnosis really sits, is diagnosis is important to the extent that it will change your management. Beyond that, you can keep you know, imaging and trying to make a diagnosis beyond that point, but if it's not going to change what you do with that patient, there is no point continuing using the resources, creating more anxiety for the patient and finding all these other things that turn up on imaging. So the specific shoulder conditions where, and I'm just going to name a few of them, and there's, there's probably a few more that I'll forget, but if we look at frozen shoulder that I've already mentioned, where a corticosteroid injection to the glenohumeral joint can help with pain and function early on. An acute episode of resorptive calcific tendinopathy, and I don't know whether your viewers will see much of that, but occasionally calcium in the rotator cuff tendons can become very inflammatory and enter a resorptive phase, which, which is excruciatingly painful. And often there is a treatment for that where they will uh, as, try and aspirate or fenestrate under ultrasound guidance. So they'll inject the calcium, try and aspirate and fenestrate and inject corticosteroid at the same time. So those patients will not tolerate no treatment. They are in that much pain that some kind of treatment is required. So making that diagnosis is important. Acute rotator cuff tears that might need surgery. So if they've had trauma and they've got a large tear, especially a complete subscapularis rupture. So if there's a traumatic complete tear of subscapularis, that needs early surgery to repair that. Oh, the AC joint instabilities, not many of them, but a few of them do need surgical stabilization. And glenohumeral joint instabilities, especially the traumatic instabilities, if there's ongoing instability related to a structural lesion, a labral tear, a, a glenoid fracture, then they may need surgery as well. So and there's more, a few more conditions, which I won't go through the complete list, but specific treatments for each of those conditions, therefore a specific diagnosis is needed. We can't make a specific diagnosis of any of those things based on our clinical examination tests alone, but we can get pretty close. We can get a pretty refined list of potential differential diagnoses based on our clinical examination, and then we can use imaging to help confirm or exclude or differentiate between different causes if we need to do that. Again, in New Zealand, we're really lucky where physiotherapists are able to refer for x-ray and ultrasound scans in the private practice setting. So we have ready access to that. I'm not sure how common that is around the world, but if you see a patient who you suspect may have a specific condition that needs imaging to help confirm because that will help direct their treatment, then I guess you use your pathways available to you, which may be going back to the doctor and, you know, politically, <laughs> it might be difficult, but suggesting in as much as you possibly can that more information might be needed. So you just use whatever pathways are available to you locally. So where a specific condition um, exists to explain the pain, it is possible using that combination of clinical and imaging investigations to get to an accurate diagnosis. In terms of our clinical examination, to get you close to your list of 
differential diagnoses from which you might want to use imaging. I tend to use a very simple clinical classification system and I categorize patients as either having an unstable shoulder. So they'll report to you in their history that their primary complaint is shoulder instability. So my shoulder subluxed or dislocated, or it continues to do that on an ongoing basis. So based on the patient history alone, you can almost put the patient into that category very, very easily. The next category would be what I call a stiff shoulder. Now, those are patients who present with primarily with a loss of passive range of motion, especially a loss of passive external rotation. And that encompasses quite a number of different conditions, but they all present with fairly similar loss of passive range of motion, especially external rotation. Some of the conditions in that category, two of the most common would be a frozen shoulder and glenohumeral osteoarthritis. But there are a few other conditions that can cause that same loss of passive movement. If there's been trauma, they may have a fracture of the humerus. They may have a locked posterior dislocation, and those are often missed, surprisingly. So if someone's had an electrocution, um, a seizure, an epileptic seizure, or a fall, and we get this in, in rugby, not infrequently in New Zealand, where they fall forwards and land on the elbows, that can cause a posterior dislocation. And there's other things, um, avascular necrosis of the humeral head, sometimes osteosarcoma as well. And I just saw an article yesterday, actually, about early Parkinson's disease can present often with bilateral shoulder stiffness. So all of those things can present with the same clinical features of loss of especially external rotation. You'd put that together with other information from the patient history, their age, the mechanism of onset, related health conditions, to try and sort of help refine that differential diagnosis. And then if you do think it's necessary, you can use an X-ray either to exclude a cause of the stiffness. So that's a stiff shoulder. Having excluded an unstable shoulder or a stiff shoulder, the next category would be um, subacromial pain. One of the important diagnostic features of that category is the fact that you've ruled out the other two. So they need to have full passive range of motion. And then if you've excluded the rotator cuff as a source of pain, and actually within that um, category, if I just go back to the rotator cuff category, th this is probably one where that diagnostic question comes up a lot, is do we need a diagnosis of a rotator cuff condition? And the ones that we need a diagnosis for are the acute rotator cuff tears, because they may need surgery. So if it's a larger tear, it may need orthopedic referral. And the resorptive calcific tendinopathy that I spoke about earlier. So that is another important diagnosis to be able to make. For the, the rest of the conditions in that group, which would include small degenerative rotator cuff tears, bursitis, tendinopathy, and partial thickness tears, we don't really need to get specific about that group of diagnoses because they're treated very much the same way. So in that category, just being able to pick up the acute and the large rotator cuff tears 
and the acute resorptive calcific tendinopathies is really important. And then the final category, having again excluded the unstable shoulder, the stiff shoulder, rotator cuff pain, then we're starting to look at some of the less common um, conditions. AC joint pain would be one of them. Arthritis is a common condition in the AC joint. Um, a condition called osteolysis of the distal clavicle, which is, um, for lack of a better word, a, a stress reaction in the clavicle, often related to repeated overhead activities or post-traumatic, and sometimes the AC joint instabilities as well. And there's another group, there's a few other things that don't quite fit into those categories that are probably less common, but yeah, there's a few other things that don't quite fit. But on, our, on the basis of our clinical examination, you can certainly describe the patient as being unstable, stiff, having rotator cuff-related pain, or pain from the AC joint. And then that can help you with your other clinical information to refine your differential diagnosis and decide if they need more imaging to make, make it more definitive. So that's, um, you know, can we make a specific diagnosis of shoulder conditions? Yes, we can using the clinical and imaging. And do we need to? That really depends on treatment. Is it going to change our treatment or not? And any condition, or there's a few others I haven't mentioned today, but I've mentioned the main ones. So anything else beyond those conditions really fall more into what I'd call a, a category of clinical entities or clinical diagnoses, where it's, it's a group of symptoms that are not really attributed to a specific shoulder diagnosis. We don't need to get more specific about that group of patients with symptoms because it's not going to change what we do with them. And to continue to try and image them and chase a, a diagnosis on imaging or anything else is likely to throw up some other asymptomatic findings on imaging. The patient might get a little bit wound up about that being the cause of their problem. They might seek more health um, interventions or believe that that's the cause of their symptoms and it can just cascade into this situation where their beliefs and expectations start to drive their pro prognosis in terms of recovery. So yeah, so I think yeah, beyond those specific conditions, we don't need a more specific diagnosis. That, yeah, there was a lot of information there. That was uh, awesome. Uh, I just want to ask you, so your role as a um, physiotherapist there, you work like with advanced practice physio, right? As advanced Correct. practice. So can you make this diagnosis yourself or you have this ability or the using the scope? It's just um, different for me. I think for most of the physical therapists, we're not used to that. So the way you were talking about it looked like you you asked the image and then you can make the diagnosis is that right that's correct yes uh, and it's probably very similar i think in other countries and i did listen to your podcast with jack miller and that was really really interesting and new zealand sounds similar to canada in that regard we just do not have enough medical specialists to be able to see the number of patients being referred through for uh, for orthopedic evaluation, but what's what what we're finding is that not all of those patients need surgery. And so what we were finding was that the orthopedic surgeon's time was being taken up by a lot of patients that just did not need surgery. And so their time 
converting to surgical treatment, which is what they do, it, it was just not efficient. And so about five or six years ago now, I started working with one of the orthopedic surgeons in the hospital. And he and I worked very closely together for a year. And he saw every patient that I saw. He was looking over my shoulder. He was asking me questions. He was watching my examination and you know, listening to me dictate my notes, which were very disconcerting. <laughs> but it was a fantastic learning experience. Now, we all, as physiotherapists, it is in our scope of practice to make you know, the diagnostic assessment is part of our scope. It's just the extent to what you use it that might differ. Now, obviously, in my field, I've gone very much down the specializing end of the diagnostic aspect and within that role yes I can make those diagnoses with the combination of my clinical examination and my access to diagnostic imaging yeah and the the art behind the science is really linking up the clinical examination with the imaging and making sure that what we're seeing on imaging matches what we're seeing clinically so that we can be very confident that yes, this is the source of the problem. And from there we can determine what is the best treatment. Is it a physiotherapy treatment um, condition? And we can then refer the patient to have that physiotherapy treatment. Or does this look like something that needs surgery? And then we can refer them to the surgeon for an assessment. And we, the only imaging we can't access readily as physiotherapists is magnetic resonance or MR imaging and CT. And there are a small group of conditions where you do need that imaging to really be able to make that definitive diagnosis. For example, a, a labral tear after a shoulder dislocation. So that won't show up on x-ray or ultrasound scan. If on our clinical examination, we have the suspicion that that may be the cause of their ongoing instability, then we can refer them to the surgeon to work through the remainder of that diagnostic process. But yes, in, in these advanced practice roles, the orthopedic triage roles, we, we can get to that level of diagnosis. And we have other physiotherapists working in, uh, in New Zealand now who are doing the same thing in shoulder service and spine, hip and knee. And um, yeah, there's, there's more and more of them sort of coming, um, coming up all the time. And it's really just to, it's making best use of the skilled workforce to help meet the need of our lack of medical specialists and the fact that patients just can't access that level of assessment because there's not enough specialists to do that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that's very interesting because I think in general, we are just more used to do the functional diagnosis. So we are not worried too much about that, uh, the imaging and all the, the, that type of diagnosis. So it's just very interesting. The diagnosis that I'm speaking of is really at the front end of the patient journey, ideally. So that's where the decisions around what is the best treatment are made. So by the time they get to the physiotherapist, hopefully the things that need surgery have been ruled out and they've seen the surgeon and they're on that pathway and they may come back for post-operative physio or rehabilitation. But uh, yeah, you're right, most patients probably especially in specialist rehabilitation settings, don't need that level of diagnostic assessment. And the, the type of assessment that is performed in that setting 
is to help direct the rehabilitation treatment. So the way that you classify patients diagnostically, if you like, in a rehabilitation setting is not by the pathoanatomic diagnosis in most cases. It's more around impairments. So what is their range of motion, muscle length, muscle strength? Are there any maladaptive cognitive or um, psychosocial or behavioral factors that might be contributing? And then that you address that within the treatment. Are there any uh, social lifestyle, environmental factors? All of those things um, probably come more into the classification of patients in the rehabilitation setting, having already gone through this, this sort of diagnostic process at the front end. No, it makes totally sense. It's just, it's fascinating to see like how the physical therapy has this different role. I think that's amazing. I, I love what I do. I've always been fascinated by how the body works and trying to figure out where the problems are coming from is what gets me out of bed in the morning. And I think it's a really good career path for physios who are interested in that sort of thing. And I think around the world, we know our, our population is increasing the older population particularly is increasing and we just don't have the workforce to keep up. So I think it's probably something that is going to become more and more common in more and more countries over the coming years. And to use the skills of physiotherapists in this diagnostic capacity, I think really makes a valuable contribution to health systems where patients struggle to access the right type of care. Hopefully. <laughs> and what would you do if you don't have a clear diagnosis? Yeah, that's a really good question too. And I think it's important to realize that we don't always have to have a diagnosis to treat patients with shoulder symptoms as long as we have excluded all of those things that we talked about earlier. So as long as we know that they don't have a, you know, a serious medical condition and infection, cancer, you know, ruled all, all of those things out. We know that they don't have a fracture or a dislocation or a soft tissue injury that needs surgery, as long as we know that the pain's not coming from the cervical or thoracic spine or the viscera or somewhere else. Once we've narrowed it down and excluded all of those things, even if we can't get to the specific shoulder condition or a specific diagnosis, we're really left with a group of symptoms that we then just have to decide how is best to treat those symptoms. And that's, that's where the art of physiotherapy really does come in because it comes down then to identifying what is driving those symptoms. What is the cause of those ongoing persistent symptoms? Now, there's, there's some really good podcasts and um, resources available out there, and particularly from Chad Cook, if you look up any of Chad's work, But if you look at all of the factors that might contribute to symptoms in the absence of a clear diagnosis, if we can modify those symptoms with mechanical means within the session, so if you can tilt the scapula posteriorly or activate the muscles slightly differently or scapular assistance tests of any description and it changes the symptoms, then we know that there is most likely a mechanical or a, a biomechanical physical element to those symptoms and that that type of treatment approach is likely to be helpful. Um, I mentioned earlier the other factors that can influence the prognosis of patients with shoulder pain are things like the cognitive behavioral factors, psychosocial factors, um, patient beliefs and patient expectations are huge in treatment and 
we, we do know that what the patient believes to be the cause of their pain, what they believe to be the best treatment for their condition and their expectations around what type of treatment they should have and their likely outcome have an enormous influence on their prognosis. So I treat those very much like an impairment and I ask patients about these things just to see whether is there anything that comes up on my radar a lot in the category of patient beliefs or expectations that I feel needs to be addressed to help them move forward with their rehabilitation. Um, sometimes it may be just a persistent inflammatory type pain, a med you know, biomedical kind of cause where perhaps they just need some pain management, maybe even anti-inflammatory medications prescribed by their doctor. Um, so we can absolutely treat patients without a diagnosis. We don't always need one if it's not going to help our treatment. And then it falls to us really to just identify what are the factors um, that are influencing their ongoing symptoms and how can we change that with biomechanical or mechanical treatment approaches, manual therapy, cognitive behavioral type approaches. It may need a bit of pain management or medical input for pain management as well. So as long as we've reduced the probability of anything serious going on so that we're minimizing the risk of harm by ongoing treatment, then absolutely that we can treat patients without a diagnosis. And, and in many cases, that is what most physical therapists are doing out there. Good. And let's transition to the final question. So what resources information that you like, that you would like share with us? There is something in particular that you like? Yeah, well, I think if you're looking in the area of diagnosis of shoulder pain, and, and probably one thing we haven't talked about is orthopedic tests. And the reason I haven't talked about it already is because <laughs> very few of them are of any use to us for diagnosis. <laughs> so it was remiss of me not to mention that earlier, but if you take nothing else out of this <laughs> conversation, orthopedic tests are not where the diagnosis lies. And none, and there's been extensive research on that. And this links back to the resources because there's some really good papers on the orthopedic tests written by Eric Hergittis and Chad Cook. And I can send you the references for those if you like, but they've done really good systematic reviews, meta-analyses of all of the orthopedic tests and very, very few of them have really any diagnostic utility when used in isolation. And that's probably one of the, the things that, one of the key points actually, I think um, from, I don't know quite what is taught these days in um, physiotherapy school or training because it's a long time since I was there. But uh, I think people do seem to have the perception that the orthopedic tests are what will give you the diagnosis. It's not. It's your history. It's your physical examination, your active and passive range of motion, your resisted tests, and a few select sort of orthopedic tests that might be helpful um, to just add weight to your body of evidence for diagnosis. But yeah, so in terms of resources, there's a couple of really good papers on the accuracy of the orthopedic tests, and I can send those through to you. Um, it would probably be remiss not to mention, I do have my own online courses, and the main reason for me putting those together was to almost document my journey along the way and sort of what I've learned along the way in terms of the diagnostic process for people with shoulder conditions. So I do have some online courses available and I can send you a link for those if you're interested. 
the um, in terms of rehabilitation, because you can't really talk about diagnosis without treatment, and I haven't really talked too much about that today. There is an excellent free ebook on shoulder rehabilitation exercises. It's about 200 pages worth, and I will send you the link for that if you like as well. And I, I guess it's I'm not a great fan of recipes, and it's a I think you, you just have to make judicious use of the exercises rather than just sort of rolling them out. You probably have to have a think about what patients they are best to apply to. But some of that information is contained within that book as well. But it's an excellent book put together by a group of specialist shoulder physiotherapists and surgeons in the UK. So I can send you that link through as well. Yeah, that would be great. I'm going to then make sure to put all the links in our show notes so people can just check that out. And what advice would you give to clinicians that are starting their careers? Okay. So anyone starting your careers, I would say keep it simple. Don't overcomplicate it. I had the benefit of spending four years during my PhD of just looking at diagnosis. And I got right into the forensic details of diagnostic accuracy and I came out the other end with the message that it's not that hard it's actually very simple stick to your basics and get very good at doing the basics I'm talking more about diagnosis so just get good at your patient history good at doing basic physical examination tests observation active and passive range of motion tests resisted tests Learn a couple of the orthopedic tests that might be useful, but be very good at interpreting the results of those tests. And just, it's as simple as that. Get very good at the basics is my main message. And what qualities and abilities that you think are important to become a successful physical therapist? Important abilities um, or qualities, I would say an attitude of lifelong learning. You're never going to know it all. There's always more to learn, and I'm still learning every day from my patients, from other physios, other orthopedic specialists that I work with. So keep learning. Keep trying to get better at what you do for the good of the patients. And if you're not sure, ask. That would be my other big message. Nobody expects you to know everything, especially early on in your career. So don't be afraid to ask, and that will make you better at what you do as well. For sure. Yeah, that was great. Thank you so much uh, for sharing all your knowledge. And it was really great talk specific about shoulder. So you're highly specialized on that. So I really appreciate you accepting my invitation and taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on your show, Mariana. I really appreciate it. And I hope everyone's enjoyed it. Questions, suggestions, or topics you want to hear about, talk to me on ptprotalk.com. Join our email list to receive updates and new episodes and subscribe here. Tell your friends about it and be sure to share. Also, leave us a review and let us know what you think. We are going to publish today's video recording on my YouTube channel, so you can check the link out in the show notes. Thanks for joining us and I'll see you next time.